May of this year, considerable controversy was caused by a speech given by Richard Turnbull, who is the principal of Wycliffe Hall, which is a theological training college in Oxford, in which he said, we are committed to bringing the gospel message of Jesus Christ to those who don't know him. And in this land, UK, that's 95% of the people. 95% facing hell unless the message of the gospel is brought to them. Well, you might imagine that the remarks made headlines in the press. Theologian damns most Britons to hell, reported the Guardian newspaper. The debate even reached the Jeremy Kyle show. And the critics were not only members of the media, but also clerics in the church, who distanced themselves from Dr. Turnbull's remarks, not only disagreeing with his percentage, but also dismissing the existence of hell itself. Now, as far as the Christian is concerned, with issues like this, as far as the Christian faith is concerned, the best way to settle such issues is to check out what its founder, Jesus, had to say on the subject. And if you're here in our series, the last in our series in Luke's Gospel, in chapter 13, the study written by a doctor named Luke, we discovered that Jesus was actually asked a question about this. As he was on his way on this journey, making his way towards Jerusalem, teaching in towns and villages, Luke records the question Jesus was asked. Someone asked him, Lord, are only a few people going to be saved? That's Luke 13, verse 23. Well, it's the other side of the same issue that was discussed in the media a few months ago. Not will most people go to hell, but the other side, will only a few people make it into heaven? That's surely a very important question, then and now. So notice carefully the answer that Jesus gave. He said to them, this is the next verse in Luke 13, Make every effort to enter through the narrow door, because many, I tell you, will try to enter, but will not be able to. Jesus says, it is no easy matter to be saved. For the door to heaven is narrow, and many people, says Jesus, despite their efforts, will not make it through. Well, the question is, of course, why not? We discover the reasons as we read on in Luke's Gospel. Not only the end of chapter 13, which we looked at with Rodney uh, in our last study, but also as we continue into this chapter now, chapter 14. So as we continue our series this evening, which we've called Good News, a Great Joy for All People, we see that Luke's focus, I want to suggest to you that Luke's focus is still on this narrow door. And that as the story progresses, we see the door narrowing, as it were. Or to put it another way, we see people beginning to fall off the crowds till there's only a few left. So I've called this subject the narrow door. And it will really help to open your Bibles again and turn to Luke 14, 
verses 1 to 35, that is the whole of the chapter. And what we discover is whether Jesus is in a house, dinner guest of a prominent religious leader and his friends, verses 1 to 24, or on the road, followed by huge crowds, verses 25 to 34, the subject is still the same. How to make it through the narrow door. How to get into heaven. And before we turn to it, let me simply ask you, I'm not going to take a show of hands, but I wonder how many of us are sure that we're going through the door. How many of us are confident we're going to make it? Or how many of us are thinking about this, and maybe that's why you're here in church this evening, and think, well, what's involved? And what I want to suggest to you, um, in different ways of looking at this chapter, but I want to suggest to you um, that highlighted in this chapter are those obstacles, some of the obstacles, which will prevent a person from getting through the narrow door. Well, let me suggest three hindrances to heaven. Easy way of remembering it. Three hindrances to heaven. Okay, here's the first one. You won't make it unless you understand God's grace. You won't make it unless you understand God's grace. Now look at the story. Once again, Jesus is guest at a meal. And while Jesus was especially criticised by the religious leaders for the kind of people's parties that he went to, and chapter 15 is all about that, God willing we'll see that next week, he was not averse to accepting meal invitations from his critics, the Jewish religious leaders, the Pharisees, the strict group, and their friends, the teachers of the law. And in this case, a prominent Pharisee invites Jesus to his home for a meal. But notice as you look at the story, there is a hidden agenda behind the invitation for, verse 1, Jesus is being carefully watched by the Pharisee and his friends. They're not particularly looking at his table manners or his dress. They're watching to see if they can find evidence which they believe will discredit Jesus and his claims and character. In fact, all that Jesus does reflects God his Father's character. And it's a direct challenge to these religious leaders who portray a false picture of what God is like. And most important of all, what I want you to see in these verses is that they have a failed understanding of God's grace. And this is seen in what follows. So here's the story. As Jesus is sitting at the meal table, or, or probably more accurately reclining, because in those days they didn't sit up at tables like we do. Uh, there were couches, sofas if you like, scattered around the tables where the, food was, uh, uh, where the food was. As Jesus is reclining at the meal time, it's a very relaxed affair, it's probably a dinner time meal or late afternoon, a man appears before him. It's not absolutely clear, but the original text suggests that, lo, it literally says, and there he was, right in front of Jesus, is a man. And it's almost certain that this man has been produced for a purpose. This is a setup, although the man himself may only be an unwilling, innocent participant. It's a setup for two reasons. First of all, the man is sick. He's suffering from a disease called dropsy. 
which was a disease where the body swells up because fluids are retained within the body in the cavities and tissues. So the man is sick, but more importantly, together with that, the day is the Sabbath, the Jewish holy day. And the critics have set this up because they're going to watch and see what will Jesus do with this man on the Sabbath day. And you see, while our question might have been, can Jesus heal the man? I don't think they're too worried about that. They've seen that he can heal people before. No, their question is, will he heal the man? Will he do it? And if he does, what will it say about the attitude of Jesus to God's law, the law of Moses? They believe that religious leaders, that they were custodians of God's law given through Moses and that their duty was to enforce its adherence so that people kept it scrupulously in every detail. And one of these laws, as you know, is the fourth of the Ten Commandments which is the Sabbath observance commandment. Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. On this day, the Lord said, you are to do no work because the Sabbath day was the last day of the week, Saturday, And the background to this was, of course, that God created the world in six days and he rested on the Sabbath. So human beings should rest as well. But the big question was, what constitutes work? And over the centuries, they tried to define every possible situation in which you might find yourself and tell people in a a list of manuals, they had loads of these kind of laws written down over the years that explained you could find out, am I doing work? It told you things like how many, how many yards you could walk on a Sabbath day and after a certain number, oh, you're into work. It told you how much you could carry on that day that constituted work. And so, they believed that if you heal somebody on the Sabbath, this definitely fell into the category of work. And if you've been with us in this series, you'll know that Jesus had already healed a man with a shriveled hand on the Sabbath, Luke 6, verses 6 to 11. Also a crippled woman, Luke 13, 10 to 17. In fact, if you read Luke's Gospel, you almost feel Jesus often, if not always, healed on the Sabbath particularly. And so now he's got a fresh challenge. And the leaders are watching carefully to see, has he learnt the lesson? What's he going to do? But Jesus knows what they are thinking and saying. The word in verse 3 is literally answered. Jesus answered the Pharisees and experts in the law. And he asked them a question. Is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath or not? See, he's asking them, have you learnt the lesson about healing on the Sabbath? Have you learnt about God's grace from those previous incidents? And what happens is they refuse to answer because if they say no, they'll appear to be harsh. If they say yes, it appears they've been inconsistent and changed their minds. And so Luke reports that they remain silent and Jesus then embraces the man and restores him to health and sends him on his way. And when he's been dismissed, Jesus challenges them again. Look at verse 5. He asks them, If one of you has a son or an ox that falls into a well on the Sabbath day, will you not immediately pull him out? Well, of course the answer is, of course they will. On the grounds of self-interest, let alone mercy. And Jesus said to them, how much more will God bring immediate relief to a sick man? 
Sadly, they still have nothing to say, for they still don't understand God's grace. So the first thing they don't understand about God's grace is this, that God's grace is undeserved. The religious leaders believed that you get what you deserve from God. If you kept his law in every minute detail, you would prosper. If you didn't, you would suffer. And therefore they believed that people who were sick were suffering because they had sinned. They actually had lists of particular sicknesses which related to particular sins. It's commonly believed that if you suffered from dropsy, you were guilty of sexual immorality. But by healing this man with dropsy on the Sabbath, Jesus demonstrates to his critics that God's grace isn't like that. It's not deserved. His critics have nothing to say. They fail to understand, and so they miss out on how you get through the narrow door to salvation. And that's not all. Jesus turns to his fellow guests and tells them a parable. It's an interesting parable. It's about, we wouldn't be too worried about it, I suppose, but where do you sit at a wedding? Uh, where would you sit at a wedding feast? When, in those days, the, the tables were normally arranged, if you can imagine this, you should have got it on the screen, but anyway, they were like in a U shape, all right? If you imagine a large U, and the guests, the, the host sat in the middle at the bottom of the U, and the seats of honour were on the right and left hand sides, and then the guests sat all the way up to the top problems of the U. Everybody understand where I'm going with this, yes? Okay. <laughs> and what he says is, when you're invited to a feast, you know, imagine the doors open, the feast, everybody goes in. Imagine everybody, it's a scrum. And he says, whatever you do, don't go and choose the seats of honour next to the host. Because what may happen is that when a distinguished guest arrives, and in those days the distinguished guest always arrived at the end, the host might say, sorry, will you vacate your seat? And then you've got to walk down, take the walk of shame, you know? You walk down to a lower seat. Better to take a lower seat and be invited to come up rather than take a higher seat and be told, go down. Now, on one level, this is just good advice to a person who doesn't want to take the walk of shame at an Eastern wedding. But there is more to it than that, for notice how Jesus concludes the parable. Verse 11, For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, he who humbles himself will be exalted. It's not just about being exalted or humbled by a host at the wedding, it's about being humbled and exalted by God. Not only is God's grace undeserved, God's grace is unmerited. In the Bible speaks today commentary on Luke, which I recommend to you, Michael Wilcox writes, to claim God's approval as a right on the grounds of one's position in the church or one's reputation in the community or even one's good opinion of oneself is a positive disqualification. There is no entry through the narrow door for the one who is laden with status symbols and a sense of his own importance. And then Jesus, and Jesus was the most uncomfortable dinner guest, I would imagine, if you read the stories in the Gospels, if you read those stories, you probably wouldn't want to invite him to a meal because he puts you on the spot all the time. He turns to his host and he gives him advice about the kind of guests to invite to meals. Now, normal practice then, and probably now is, if you're going to have a big celebration, you invite your friends, your family, and your rich neighbours to your parties, and then they invite you back to their parties, with the result that you get paid back in kind. So you'll be repaid, says Jesus in verse 12. But Jesus proposes something radically different. 
He says, when you, get, when you have, give a banquet, verse 13, invite the poor, the crippled, the lame, the blind, you will be blessed. Although they cannot repay you, you will be repaid at the resurrection of the righteous. Jesus says, you won't be repaid by these people in this life because they can't afford to invite you back. But Jesus says, you will be blessed. You'll find faith with God, not because you earn brownie points for acts of charity, but because you demonstrate in action that God's grace is unconditional. God shows his grace, his love and his favour to people who have nothing to give in return other than amazed gratitude. Now, the people that Jesus listed here were regarded as outside the pale by the religious leaders of the day. But Jesus says, and he goes on to emphasise it in the next parable, they're welcomed into God's banquet in heaven. Only if you understand this fundamental point about God's grace and show it by inviting people like this to your parties, will you make it into heaven to be repaid at the resurrection of the righteous? If you've only just mixed with your own family and friends and done good to them, You've already been paid in kind. So, the first major obstacle, the first hindrance to heaven, is a failure to understand God's grace. Now, that was true then, and it is still true today. I would probably say this, I don't know what teaching Mark at college these days, at theological college, I went to the same college way back in the 60s, uh, but probably the most difficult theological thing to understand, fact, is not the Trinity, difficult though it is to understand, or predestination, or these great theological issues, the most difficult thing to understand in terms of understanding it in your own experience, the most difficult thing to understand is God's grace. That God loves you unreservedly, not because of who you are, not because of what you've done. God just loves you because He's a gracious and loving God. None of us can make it through the narrow door by our own efforts. And the great debate that Jesus had with these religious leaders was they just couldn't get it. They were shut out because they just couldn't understand this basic principle. Only God's grace, undeserved, unmerited, unconditional, is sufficient. And unless you understand that, you'll never get through the narrow door. So the simple way to ask yourself is this. If you were to stand before God tonight in judgment... God was to say to you, why should I let you into heaven for all eternity? What would your answer be? If there's anything you say to God that you think is going to merit you getting in, or merit me getting in, you know, as the pastor of Charlotte Chapel though, gave lots of long sermons on Sunday, <laughs> did good things to nice people, gave money, whatever it is, missed the point. You and I will only get in by God's grace. Nothing else. That's why we sing about amazing grace, because it really is surprising. And if you understand it, you'll say, I still can't understand how it is that God loves me. If you're sitting there thinking, well, if I was God, I'd love me. <laughs> you missed the point. The person understands you understand your own sinfulness, your own unworthiness, that God loves you. And only if you understand God's grace will you get through the narrow door. That's the first hindrance. Let's just keep moving because we've got an after church which you've heard about. Okay. Secondly, you won't make it unless you accept God's invitation. Verses 15 to 24. Now, 
when Jesus said all this, have you ever been at a party where someone has suddenly said something in a loud voice that wasn't politically correct? Or that was kind of off the wall or a bit embarrassing? You know, like, where on earth did you get that meat from? That was terrible. You know, you wouldn't say it, of course. You're polite. But, but Jesus always put people on the spot. And I would imagine, after he said this, there was one of those kind of embarrassed silences, you know, where everybody's looking around thinking, say something, what do you do now? And is it not the case that usually at a party, those of you who go to parties, and looking around, party people here, but anyway, is it not true that usually on these cases, there's someone who tries to break the tension, and what do you do? You say something you think is really uncontroversial, you know, and hasn't the weather been good today, you know. And I like to think that's what happens here. There's this kind of stunned, embarrassed silence as Jesus has been talking totally contrary to the way that they think, this, this party of religious leaders. One of the guests says, Blessed is the man who will eat at the feast in the kingdom of God. See, he's picked up the banquet theme. Yeah? Blessed is the man who will eat at the feast in the kingdom of God. What greater privilege! Who could disagree? What greater privilege than to be a guest at the final celebration in heaven? Ask yourself what Scottish football fan wouldn't want a ticket for the forthcoming game against Italy and multiply it by a million? Who wouldn't want to be there? Yes, Stuart, Scottish ticket, I know. (laughs) And no doubt when he said this, there was a kind of collective sigh of relief and maybe everybody said, ah, yes, yeah. In our generation, we'd all sing, you know, we'll be there, praise the Lord, we'll all be there. You know, something like that. No one can disagree with that, except Jesus. And he tells another parable. Again, it's a parable about a great banquet to which many guests are invited. Now, you need to understand the, the Eastern background here, and it still happens in some parts of the world today. When you organise like a wedding feast or a banquet or a big celebration... You sent out two invitations. Unless you understand this, you won't get the point. Okay? First of all, you sent your servant with an invitation to people saying, my master's organising a big wedding feast. Would you like to come? And people either said yes or no. But because the wedding feast usually took a lot of time to prepare, maybe days or weeks, the servant would then go around a second time to those who had said yes to tell them exactly that it's ready. And that's what the parable's about. He sent his servants to say to those who'd already said they were going to come and said, come, everything's ready. That's why we sang that song. The feast is ready to begin. But amazingly, the servant discovers that when he goes around to all these people who've said, I'm going to come, they've now changed their minds. There are three excuses described here covering sort of three different areas, Okay. The first three excuses for refusing the invitation. You see what they are? First of all, possessions. I have just bought a field, says one man, and I must go and see it. Please excuse me. Second is excuse of work. Another man says, I've just bought five yoke of oxen. I'm on my way to try them out. Please excuse me. The third doesn't even say, please excuse me. He just says, I've just got married. I can't come. Now again, you need to understand the background. Uh, Middle Eastern scholar Kenneth Bailey points out, these are not valid excuses. No self-respecting Jew would buy a field without seeing it first. Or buy five yoke of oxen without trying them out first. 
All years of marriage surely planned long ahead as a reason for non-attendance at a wedding he'd promised to come to. No, these are all inexcusable excuses. And the amazing punchline, the, the sting in the parable, the sting in the tale is this. Jesus says, when this big banquet comes up in heaven, people will make inexcusable excuses. Actually, people don't really want to come. Yes, my pious friend, you said, blessed is he who eats the banquet in the feast of heaven. Jesus says, no, most people don't want to come and you guys don't really want to come. Why don't they want to come? Because they've got other things that they prefer to do. And that's the reason for the response of the master. The servant goes back and he says, they've all turned it down. They've all made excuses. And the master becomes angry and he extends the invitation to others. And who does he tell the servant to invite? Did you notice the connection? Go out quickly into the streets and alleys of the town and bring in the poor, the crippled, the blind, the lame. The very people Jesus has just told his host to invite to their wedding feast. Those are the kind of people that God wants to invite to his wedding feast because the religious folk really don't want to come. They prefer to do other things. God accepts and invites such people. And he comes back and he says, yeah, they've all come, there's still room. And he says, go out to the roads and country lanes, make them come in so that my house will be full. The words make them have sadly been misused in the past to coerce people into accepting God's offer of salvation. What it really means is to persuade people, persuade these people that it really is a genuine invitation because they won't believe it. You know, when you go down at night in the graveyards and see the guys who are sleeping out and say to them, I've got a big wedding feast, I want you guys to come. Most of them won't believe it, they'll think, there's something wrong here. God's grace is such. You see, the pious guest commented how privileged a person would be to be invited by God to the final feast in heaven, but Jesus says, look, you and your friends, your religious friends, you are actually missing out. Here's the danger of missing out. I tell you, not one of these men who were invited will get a taste of my banquet. Verse 24. And what is true of them can be true of us. So let me ask you a question about getting into heaven through the narrow door. Are you in danger of missing out? And let me suggest something to you. It's a greater danger sometimes for the religious people. Those of you who have grown up in Charlotte Chapel and think it's all passé. And suddenly you find these folk come and they go to Christianity Explorer and they've been to church in their lives and they embrace the gospel gladly. You're missing out. You won't make it to heaven unless you accept God's invitation. But notice this very carefully. The reason you will miss out on heaven is by your own refusal. New Testament scholar T.W. Manson comments, The two essential points in his, that's Jesus' teaching, are that no man can enter the kingdom without the invitation of God, No man can remain outside of it but by his own deliberate choice. Man cannot save himself, but he can damn himself. And it is the latter point that makes the urgency, the preaching of Jesus, so urgent. See what Jesus is saying? You can't come unless you're invited. But if you're not in heaven, the responsibility lies with you for refusing the invitation. It's a very serious warning. Can you see the, the narrow door is narrowing? Well, the door isn't narrowing, but, but the number of people getting in are less and less. And that urgency increases as Jesus, having left the home of the Pharisee, sets out on the road to Jerusalem, and he turns and addresses the large crowds who are following him. 
And so we come to the third hindrance to heaven, which can be summarized as follows. You won't make it unless you follow God's Son. And while the religious establishment has largely rejected Jesus, up to this point, there are huge crowds of people who are still following. He's very popular. So, go back to our original question. Will only a few make it in? Well, at this point, you'd think, well, no, actually, this load's going to make it in. There's huge crowds of people here. Large numbers will be saved. But in fact, Jesus says, many will try to enter through the narrow door, they'll fail to make it, and the reason is the cost of following me. The cost of following Jesus, God's Son. And at this particular point, Jesus begins to spell out what it's going to cost to follow him. Oh yeah, the invitation's free. Price is paid. But the cost to follow to be a disciple is very high. And Jesus emphasizes two demands for would-be followers. The first is a supreme love for Jesus. If you're going to get into heaven through the narrow door, you must have a supreme love for Jesus. If anyone comes to me and does not hate his father and mother, his wife and children, his brothers and sisters, yea, even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. Again, people have misunderstood this to mean that if you become a Christian, you have to leave your family behind and you must hate them. Again, you need to understand the background, the Semitic language background. To talk about hate and love is a way of expressing preference. You love and hate by choosing. the one that, What you choose, you love, and you reject. And the word is hate there. Uh, another commentator explains it, Leon Morris. He says, Jesus' meaning is surely that the love the disciple has for him must be so great that the best of earthly love is hatred by comparison. In other words, that we love Jesus above every other relationship. C.T. Studd, the famous cricketer, uh, who gave up fame and fortune in 1885 to go out as a missionary to China, uh, is said of him uh, that he he was worried about his fiancée becoming so occupied with him that the Lord Jesus would not have first place in her life. And, and this is hard to believe, but he composed a little poem for it to say every day. And you'll laugh at this, but just think about it. He says, the poem he said she should say every day is, Jesus Christ, I love thee, thou art to me, dearer than Charlie ever could be. Jesus, I love thee, thou art to me, Dearer than Charlie ever could be. Now, you might think that's a bit well, you know. But it's the kind of love that Jesus demands of his followers. You see, Colin talked about it this morning. What is it that we love most of all? You know, where, was it where your pleasure is, there your treasure is? Your pleasure is, there your treasure is. What is it you love above all else? Do you really love Jesus above all else? And in comparison with your love for him, all other loves are almost like hate. Not literally, it doesn't mean you don't love your wife or your family and everything else, but you have a supreme love for Jesus. Even over your own life. And that leads into the second thing that Jesus demands. Not only a supreme love for Jesus, but a sacrificial life like Jesus. And anyone who does not carry his cross and follow me cannot be my disciple. In a day today where crosses are worn as jewellery, without comment, it's hard to get the impact of what Jesus' words would have meant to people in the first century. In those days, to carry a cross meant only one thing. You were on your way to being executed as a common criminal 
by the most gruesome death imaginable. And Jesus is taking the road to Jerusalem, which will lead to a cross. And he's saying to the crowds, if you're going to follow me, it's going to cost you everything. For many of them, it would literally mean a cross. For many people today in our world, in different cultures, it's a very costly step to follow Jesus Christ. For some, it means death. You I'm just amazed how oblivious Christians are to what's happening in our world today. I take a Christian magazine. There's one page I just hate reading. It's world news. And it goes through country after country listing people who are suffering and dying and being martyred and killed for the name of Christ. And I read it and I grieve. And I think how much, how, how much less it costs us to be Christians today to stand up and be counted wonder what it's costing you to be a Christian. But Jesus says, there is a cost. You need to be prepared to pay the ultimate price if necessary. Who knows what God may call on us to do. So Jesus says, if you're going to go through this narrow door, if you're going to follow me, count the cost before you begin. And he uses again two pictures or parables to describe what it means to count the cost before starting out. First of all, he, he talks about a building project that you can't complete. He says, a man plans to build a, a, a tower on his property, probably for security. But first, Jesus says, before you do it, estimate the cost and work out, go to your bank and have a look. Have you got enough funds to finish the project? Otherwise, if you run out of money, everyone will laugh at you when they see the tower half finished. And then he uses another illustration, this time, a war you cannot win. Verses 31 to 32. He says, if a king plans to go to war, he first sits down and estimates the relative strength of his army with his opponent's army. If he only has half the number of soldiers his opponent has, he would be wise to sue for peace before fighting begins and he's defeated. And loses a war he cannot win. Another great New Testament scholar, A.M. Hunter, puts it very well. He says, in the first parable, Jesus says, sit down and reckon whether you can afford to follow me. In the second, he says, sit down and reckon whether you can afford to refuse my demands. There's a cost to following. There is a cost to refusing. So to follow Jesus is costly. If Jesus is who he claims to be, then it will and must cost everything. In the same way, any of you who does not give up everything he has, cannot be my disciple. Now again, it doesn't literally mean that people own absolutely nothing. It means letting go of anything that is non-essential. It means that everything we have is at the disposal of Jesus. And how easily we sing it, you know, Lord, I offer my life to you, everything I've got. You know, Lord, take it for your glory, use it for your glory. But is that a reality? Now can you see how narrow the door is. Can you see why few people go through it? Why many people, I think I've been in this church 15 years and sat in congregations like this, I think of people who've come through and sat here, some of them for a week, some of them for a month, some of them six months, a year, and I've watched them and I've talked to some of them and explained to them the way of following Jesus. Uh, if they were all here this evening, you wouldn't have got in for the queue down Princess Street. Because many people come and they look and they count the cost and they say, you say, I'd love to get to heaven, be sure, but actually I've got other things I prefer to do. 
to the things I love more. It's all or nothing. And so Jesus concludes by saying to me, you may wonder, what's this got to do with the rest of the passage? He says, salt is good, but if it loses its saltiness, how can it be made salty again? It's fit neither for the soil nor for the manure heap. It's thrown out. He who has ears to hear, let him hear. What is he saying? Well, salt in Jesus' day, before the scientists tell us that salt can't lose its saltiness because sodium chloride is sodium chloride, all right? Before you tell me that at the door. Um, in, in, in ancient days, salt was often gathered from places like the Dead Sea, from salt pans, from dried out salt pans, and it was mixed in with impurities like gypsum and gravel and other bits of white powder. And uh, it was possible that the salt part could be leached out so that in the end you had no salt, it had lost its saltiness. And when that happens, Jesus says, the salt's fit for nothing. You can't even use it for manure or, you know, the manure heap to fertilize. Um, on the soil, it's no good at all. Now, what is he saying that for? He's saying, you cannot be a kind of disciple who comes along and you follow Jesus, but you've never really counted the cost. You're a Christian who has no distinctiveness. You've, you, you've lost any, anything that makes you stand out as a fully devoted follower of Jesus Christ. You're not in our chapel motto, you're not conspicuous for Christ. If I'm a disciple who's unwilling to count the cost and follow Jesus, I lose my saltiness, my distinctiveness, and the result is, as far as God is concerned, I'm useless. Daryl Bock, American New Testament scholar, comments, How horrible to be thrown away by God when one could have been used by Him. So consider the cost. Have the resolve of a disciple who fully pursues God. Luke's call is to hear the warning and respond with faithfulness. He who has ears to hear, let him hear. That's what we began with. What we prayed at the beginning. So, how are you responding to what God has said to you this evening? In my somewhat stumbling words. Let me say something finally in conclusion. We began with our theme, the narrow door. If you've ever been to Bethlehem, and sadly it's a place that less and less people are going to because of political situation. But if you have you will have visited the Church of the Nativity. It's the traditional site of the birthplace of Jesus, the church there. Uh, the original doors to the inner site were bricked off many years ago to stop invaders entering on horseback through the door. Now, if you go there today, still today, there's only one way in through a very, very low and narrow door. It's actually called the Door of Humility. A few weeks ago, about three weeks ago, Condoleezza Rice, the American Secretary of State, and a professing Christian, visited Bethlehem and the church. And although she's one of the most powerful people in the world, she had to stoop and to enter. And she could only enter alone. And so must all of us who follow Jesus. Not only in his humble birth in his stable, but in his humiliating death on a cross. That is why most of the crowds who followed Jesus on the road abandoned him by the time he reached the cross for the cost was too great. That is why still today as Jesus himself said, Matthew 22:14, many invited but few are chosen. And that is why the words of Jesus still challenge us today. Make every effort to enter through the narrow door because many I tell you, says Jesus, will try to enter, will not be able to. Let's make sure by God's grace that we enter 
the narrow door, no matter what the cost may be. Let's pray.